Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. We don't care how long, but I can tell you one thing. Those of you that keep voting against that bill, we're going to vote against you. We got more numbers than the police union. It's Thursday, February 2nd, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show... New recommendations for women at risk for ovarian cancer. And re-entering the workforce after leaving prison. But first, that was the Reverend Al Sharpton speaking yesterday at the funeral for Tyree Nichols in Memphis. Vice President Kamala Harris was also there. And today she and President Biden are meeting with members of the Congressional Black Caucus to talk police reform. They want to try again at passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which Democrats introduced nearly two years ago. It passed the House, but not the Senate, and negotiations broke down in 2021. But with Republicans in control of the House now, are their chances any better this time? Yanilda Maria Gonzalez studies policing at the Harvard Kennedy School, and she told Scott Tong that the bill stands out as one of the first federal efforts at police reform in a long time. So some of the key pieces of the legislation are a ban on chokeholds, an end to qualified immunity for law enforcement, uh, which uh, in short just kind of protects individual police officers from being held personally liable for their acts of misconduct. It also bans um, no-knock warrants uh, in federal law enforcement. And really important is the creation of mandating data collection on acts of police misconduct and police violence, um, as well as creating a registry of police officers who engage in misconduct and who are fired so that they cannot simply, you know, leave one agency, be fired from one agency, and then go be hired oh, by uh, an, another okay. police force in a different jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. At the state level, local level, have we seen signs, encouraging signs from your perspective of policing reform? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think the issue that I've mentioned, qualified immunity, for example, this was one of the sticking points that prevented the George Floyd Act from passing in the Senate last year. But this is something that has been tackled at the state level. For example, California passed legislation, I think, in um, 2021 or 2022 that ended qualified immunity for police officers. We've also seen, however, that this hasn't worked in every state. For instance, in Massachusetts, uh, they did not successfully pass. Not only did they not pass qualified immunity in their police reform, uh, but they also just kicked the can down the road and said, okay, we should revisit this issue in two years. But but nevertheless, we've seen some encouraging signs, such as the creation of um, civilian commissions that can certify and decertify officers who engage in misconduct so that, as I mentioned, they cannot simply go and leave one police force or be fired and then mm. be hired by a police force in a different jurisdiction. Now, we in the news media, I mean, we cover these events of excessive force. Americans know the names Eric Garner, Breonna Taylor, now Tyree Nichols, The Washington Post uh, has done its own tally suggesting that three people a day die at the hands of police. Do we know, as far as the data, whether this rate is increasing? 
it's actually very difficult to know that because we don't have kind of a historic or systematic uh, count by the government of how many people are killed by police each year. So, for example, I always tell my students this, if I want to know how many tornadoes were there in Alabama in 1909, uh, I, I can look it up and I know that the answer is 14. But if I want to know how many people were killed by police last year, I cannot actually get that information from a you know government source that systematically collects that data. And so while the Washington Post and others who are collecting this data um, in more recent years, these are heroic efforts, uh, because of the nature of this information, it's hard to know if the increases that they are observing in their databases are due to just better reporting in the media, for example, better reporting through public records requests, or have there actually been an objective increase in the number of killings? In your view... Is there something that is driving, encouraging the use of excessive force? I mean, I think it's a number of things. One of them is the kind of broad legal leniency that police have to use force. Essentially, to put it in plain terms, police know that if they use force, they will get the benefit of the doubt, legally speaking, right? There are a number of Supreme Court cases like qualified immunity, like Graham v. Connor, which establishes very, very high bar for judging police use of force. They know that they are ultimately, legally speaking, going to receive the benefit of the doubt. I think more broadly, though, we have to, as a society, as a political system, we have to rethink what role we want police to have in society, right? At the core of policing is the use of force. You know, any scholar of policing there will tell you that the use of force and the authorization to use it is central to policing. So now what do we saying as a society when we say, come police into our schools, come deal with our mental health crises, come deal with our homelessness crisis, come enforce our traffic laws. We're essentially opening the door for use of force to be used in an ever-expanding number of scenarios, right? And so I think that we have to have as a society a broader conversation and a broader consensus about when uh, use of force, use of policing is and is not desirable and appropriate. And I think that if we were to come to the conclusion that we were opposed to such expansive uses of force, our politicians would react and we would in fact see reduced uses of force as we see in other parts of the world. That's Yanilda Gonzalez, assistant professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. She focuses on policing policy. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much, Scott. Coming up next, some health news. As researchers revise their recommendations on how to lower the risk of ovarian cancer. That's after the break. Unlike with some other cancers, there's no reliable screening for ovarian cancer, which is the fifth highest cause of cancer deaths among women in the U.S. Doctors recommend some women with particular genetic mutations that are at higher risk for the disease get their ovaries and fallopian tubes removed. But now the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance is broadening that guidance to include women without those mutations. Ronnie Rabin wrote about this for the New York Times, and she explained the nuance in that guidance to Robin Young. Women who carry a genetic mutation that puts them at high risk for ovarian cancer, and the best-known ones are BRCA1 and BRCA2, sometimes called BRCA1, BRCA2, but BRCA, they are advised to have the ovaries removed as soon as they're done having their children that they want to have to reduce the, the likelihood they'll develop ovarian cancer. That recommendation doesn't change. This is a recommendation that's really made more to the general population. 
And, and I just want to jump in and say, although that was so preventive for women with those mutations, this plunges, this idea of removing the ovaries plunges uh, people into menopause. And so with the next group of women, the general population, they're not being told to remove their ovaries, but just the fallopian tubes. Why? Well, it's become clear over time that ovarian cancer doesn't actually usually start in the ovaries. That it starts, it originates in the tubes, the fallopian tubes that lead from the ovaries to the uterus. So in a sense, this is a very clever move. If you could remove the fallopian tubes and leave the ovaries so women aren't plunged into surgical menopause and so women continue to reap the health benefits of having ovaries, which are many, you might be able to completely reduce or maybe even eliminate the risk of ovarian cancer for those women. Right. And some of those later issues that uh, the hormones produced by ovaries can help out with are the risk of heart disease, osteoporosis, sexual dysfunction. And so this is good news that researchers feel that just removing the fallopian tubes would greatly prevent ovarian cancer. But is this the shocking and some would say surprising part to some women that even if they don't have the BRCA1 or 2, they're at risk and should remove their fallopian tubes? Well, they've been trying to develop a screening test for ovarian cancer. And, and there's been a lot of hard work and research put into it. And there's a large trial in the UK. They randomized some women to get screening with this blood test called CA125 and with ultrasound imaging scans. And they thought, maybe we can use this to find ovarian cancer early. It is a stealthy cancer. They did find it earlier, but not early enough to make a difference and save lives. Yeah. So that's where this is coming from. It's sort of like, this is a cancer that, yeah, it's not one of the more common cancers, but it is the fifth leading cancer killer for women. And it's often found at a very late stage because we don't have a good way of screening it. It doesn't produce symptoms until late. Okay. So the removal of the fallopian tubes uh, for more women than was thought is part of this headline. But also we understand that the push is to get more testing out to women so that they know if they are predisposed if they have BRCA1 or 2. Exactly, exactly. So what OCRA, the, this Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, wants is, first of all, it wants people to get tested. They're, they're sending out kits, especially if it's in women's families. That's part one. Part two is consider this having the fallopian tubes removed, but only under certain circumstances. It's very nuanced. Um, you've had your children, you're going in for some other pelvic surgery. They're not telling women to run out and get surgery to remove their fallopian tubes. Yeah. Definitely not. It's very specific and narrow. If you are already having pelvic surgery, gynecologic surgery, then consider having the fallopian tubes removed. We'll link people to your reporting. New York Times reporter Ronnie Rabin uh, speaking with us about news about ovarian cancer prevention. Ronnie, thank you so much. You're welcome. Coming up, every year, more than 700,000 people are released from America's prisons and jails. And many of them, if not most, have trouble getting a job or housing as returning citizens. After the break, Scott talks to one man who did make the transition with some help from a new group that's tackling the issue. Stick around.
Nearly 80 million people in this country have a criminal record, and many struggle to find employment or to find a place to live. Now, some states and businesses are moving to help lower those barriers for ex-offenders. The Second Chance Business Coalition is a group of large private sector companies working to expand hiring of ex-offenders. Microsoft, CVS Health, Walmart are among the group members. And let's talk now to Dane Lin, Senior Vice President at the Business Roundtable, a group that is a founding partner of the Second Chance Business Coalition. Dane, welcome. Thank you for having me. So first of all, can you help us understand the challenge facing your members, these companies? What are the legal barriers for companies to hire the formerly incarcerated? And what are the, the social barriers, the stigma? Yeah, I think there, there are many barriers are in the way, but I think it's first important to talk about what the opportunities are. You know, with a little over 10 million open jobs in this country, this is providing, I think, an opportunity for a whole host of people, including individuals with criminal records, who've been excluded. That said, there are a number of barriers that get in the way, one of which is the the systems that some employers are using that automatically exclude individuals without a college degree. And so we think there are ways in which to change the human resource systems that will allow for individuals with these records who have the skills that companies need to hire. Mm -hmm. I think the other the other barrier that gets in the way oftentimes are the the legal requirements and how do we how do we figure out which jobs where there are federal regulations that would exclude individuals with criminal records from getting those jobs but not all jobs should exclude these individuals there are not regulatory requirements so it's really about dispelling the myth what's a real barrier versus what's a perceived barrier yeah it is early for your coalition but I wonder what companies are already learning about benefits of hiring persons with criminal records. I came across some research uh, that the coalition came out with suggesting so-called second-chance employees are statistically highly engaged, highly loyal. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I don't know what else I could say in, uh, in addition to, to the point that you just made. Um, not only are they loyal, but they're hard workers. And they seek more, not just for themselves, but they seek more for the families in which they're supporting. And I think that's what is key to companies <clears throat> being able to say, this is a person that I want to stay in the company, and not mm -hmm. only to stay in the company in the same job, but this is a person that I want to advance in my company. So those are some of the benefits. What about challenges that the coalition is, is learning about? I, I gather many of these potential workers don't just need jobs, they may need counseling, housing, work-specific clothing, all of those things. What we have seen, <clears throat> our companies are providing a set of wraparound services. So as you pointed out, it may be counseling, but it may also be childcare. It may be transportation. So how do we, how do we provide a mentor? to help support them because many of these individuals have never worked in corporate America. They may be the first person in their family who has worked in corporate America. So it's essential not just to provide them a job, but to provide them those services that will ensure their success in our companies. And finally, Dane, I wonder if you have an anecdote that comes to mind that kind of goes to a specific company that has kind of been in this new space or an individual hired by one of these companies. Mm. 
I, I think one of the <clears throat> examples that I often use is J.P. Morgan Chase. Over the past three years, 10% of the company's hires have been individuals with criminal records. That's nearly 4,500 people a year. The other example I would give is Eaton. So whether they, they ban the box, whether they don't ask the question of whether or not they have a criminal record until the final interview, but they, they have made a number of changes through their interviewing process that is increasing opportunities to individuals who apply to that company, not just in Cleveland, but in their other locations in the Midwest and down South as well. Nain Lin is Senior Vice President at the Business Roundtable. The corporate group is a founding partner of the Second Chance Business Coalition. Dane, thanks so much for the time. Thank you, Scott. And joining us now is one of those so-called second chance employees. Richard McMichael is an accountant at Coke Minerals and Trading, and he's on the line. Richard, welcome to Here and Now. Hey, it's nice to be here. And you were incarcerated for five years or so at the Winfield Correctional Facility in Kansas. And one of your jobs when you were there was to pick up trash along a highway, and that highway overlooked the company headquarters of Coke Industries. Do you remember what you thought about as you did that job and looked over at that corporate building? So at this time, I had been, I'd already set a goal to try to uh, gain employment when I got out at Coke Industries. Yeah, I'd never seen Coke Industries headquarters, but when I got put on the uh, crew that worked on the K96 highway, the highway goes right by the headquarters, and it was uh, pretty surreal to uh, look up and, and see the place that I've been pursuing for probably about three and a half years at this point, and seeing everybody go from the parking lot into work, and it was... Uh, it was kind of like looking across the uh, fence, literally, at your, uh, at your dream. Yeah. And along the way, maybe this is part of the focusing you're talking about. I understand when you were in prison, you read an article on criminal justice reform and second chance hiring. And it turns out the author was a lawyer for Coke Industries. His name is Mark Holden. What did you take away from reading that? I think it was focusing on the discussion that as the criminal justice system stands now there's economic setbacks as not hiring people that have previous criminal histories because then you're effectively removing them from the workforce and any kind of economic participation and it hurts you know when someone goes goes to prison it not only hurts their family it hurts themselves hurts the uh, community and as far as what i witnessed inside yes his argument was 100 percent true Hmm. While you were in prison, I understand you wrote a letter to Cook Industries to a second chance hiring manager. What did you write? So I, you know, came across an article on a, on a guy named John Buckley. And, you know, he had some, just like Mark Holden, had some very good points about second chance hiring that I really believed in. And so I wrote him a letter just trying to introduce myself. You know, it was important to me. I wanted to take ownership for what I did, but I also wanted to separate that what I did didn't define, you know, who I was going to be and, you know, tell them that, you know, I'd gotten my degree and I think that I uh, could be a real asset to, to working at Coke and, you know, I was willing to, to start anywhere and just, you know, I was trying to get an opportunity to do so. And what's your work now? So I work on the exchange settlement team at Coke Minerals and Trading. I am an accounting automation analyst, so I mostly program bots that do accounting 
and we handle a lot of exchange trading settlement activities. Oh, well, good for you. I'm curious, when you first went to work at Coke, as you described, you left prison and very quickly went to this job. Initially, what were the obstacles, either transportation or housing, kind of practical obstacles or stigma? Well, I'll be honest with you. I, I mean, even though I had such a great jump start on getting out, namely having a very, very good job, I did break down at one point. I mean, I get, you get out and, you know, you got to go open a bank account. Then, well, you got to get there. They ask you for your driver's license. Well, you don't have a driver's license or a valid one. So then you, you know, okay, that's fine. So then you're going to go to the DMV to get your, your driver's license. But then they say, well, we need a proof of residency. We need a water bill. To get your water turned on, you have to have credit and you have to have a bank account. Mm. And so it was like this endless loop where you couldn't solve the problem. And when you when you put that in perspective, if you don't have a job, you don't have income, and you're dealing with all that, I it, it, it's a huge mountain to climb. Yeah, right. How about at the workplace? Uh, I mean, did your colleagues know of your past? Was there any sense of being stigmatized by people who would say something to you or look at you a certain way? Absolutely not. So day one, starting my supervisor made it clear that, you know, no one knew, but that was totally up to me. If I wanted to discuss it with my coworkers, that, I mean, that was my prerogative. I did end up coming out and, and telling all my coworkers, I did a, uh, a story with Coke Industries. And at that point, you know, we all went into a meeting room and kind of watched the video and the support was kind of overwhelming. It almost made me cry. You know, all my coworkers wanted to come up and hug me. And I didn't really feel like I did anything, you know, that, extraordinary. You know, I was just, you know, they're just my coworkers. I just work with them every day. But yeah, the support was kind of overwhelming on that. And it was, um, it was very nice to see everyone's opinion on the second chance hiring. And they, you know, the very, they were very, very supportive of it. So your employer, Coke Industries, allowed you to remain silent about your, your past. You could choose whether to discuss your past being incarcerated. I guess my question is, do you think being incarcerated actually made you a better worker than you otherwise would be? Yeah, so I think for myself, it definitely instilled work ethic and focus because where I work, I can walk to the window that overlooks outside and it looks directly at the highway that a year ago I was walking up and down picking up trash on the other side of the fence, looking at my dream. It's now I was looking back at the past and it's, and it's a great reminder to stay focused and um, always make decisions with integrity, not to end up back at the place that I started. And that's Richard McMichael. He's an accountant at Coke Minerals and Trading, and he was hired after serving a five-year prison sentence. Richard, thanks for sharing your story and, and best of luck to you. I appreciate you too. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. Head to hereandnow.org for more stories, including a deep dive into Icelandic folklore surrounding elves and trolls. There's more to it than just superstition. They have a sense of humor, but what they're really talking about is the holiness and the spirit that lives in the earth. It's not tiny little people that we can make fun of. You can hear that conversation at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Shirley Jihad, Gabrielle Healy, and Sam Rafelson. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Peter O'Dowd, Jill Ryan, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. 
theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.